0: Thanks, Vanessa. If you want to pull out your outlines, that'll help you to kind of move through and take some notes as we look at this great section in the next segment of Luke's Gospel. Why don't we pray and ask God now to help us? Let's pray. Father, as we come together tonight, we come from all different Backgrounds and days, some of us having great days, great weeks, others having hard days, maybe even hard years. We pray that as we hear your word this evening, as we've heard it read and as we now think through it and meditate on it, that you would speak to us, that we might see tonight what you want us to see, that we would see clearly who your son is and the implications for how we live. And that by your spirit and through this word, we would walk away tonight changed, living differently, shaped and molded into the likeness of your son because of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to try a small thought experiment with us tonight. Uh, So hear me out. I'd love everyone in the room uh, to shut your eyes. Shut your eyes right now. It's all right. We're not going to steal your stuff. Shut your eyes. Um, and I want you to imagine, so don't open them. G- keep your eyes shut for a while. Uh, I promise I'm trying not to hypnotize you. I don't even know how to do that. Um, g- keep your eyes shut. Are you ready? I want you to imagine that tonight you go home. And you go home from uni church and you've had a good night and, and you kind of get into bed. It's all kind of cool outside. The rain's falling. You, you get under the covers. It's nice and warm. Like This is great. You go to sleep. You think, what a night. This is helpful. You have a great night's rest. Then you wake up in the morning, you kind of, you're waking up, and as you go to wake up, your eyes don't open. What you see right now with your eyes, that darkness that exists, is, is all you can see. You, you kind of try and open your eyes, but you can't. Everything is black. You get out of bed but you fall, you hit your head on the bedside table and you're kind of holding your head at that moment. You're like, what is going on? You kind of stumble into the bathroom, Uh, you pick the wrong room, you're in the cupboard, you turn around and you go into the bathroom now and, and you kind of start washing your face but your eyes still haven't opened, you still can't see. You're like, what is going on? You have a shower, you wash your face, it's still the same, nothing happens. You get dressed, you just hope that the clothes you pick match, that there's no stripes and, and kind of spots together, because that'll be horrible. And so you're kind of like, man, what am I going to do? And, and then you're worried about, man, what if I haven't like ironed my shirt? some of you, that's a, that's a normal occurrence. For others of you, you're like, this is, this is not normal, I would normally iron. You then, you kind of head into the kitchen, you think, I've got to eat. You reach for the milk, hoping it's not custard. And you kind of pour it over your cereal, hoping you can get it in the bowl, thinking, what is going on? What am I going to do at this point? You then go and cling your teeth and you try and find your keys to get ready to go out. But then you realize it doesn't matter anyway because you can't see to drive your car. Imagine for a moment what you can see right now is your future. Day after day, month after month, year after year. Imagine that you couldn't see. When you can't see clearly, the world around you crumbles. We lose our jobs. There's all sorts of things that we can't do. It is hard to live in the world when we don't see clearly. Okay, now open your eyes. I hope everyone can see now. See, seeing clearly is one of the most valuable insights anyone can have. I bet there was a sense of relief as you opened your eyes and went, oh, I can open them. (laughs) This is great. Imagine living for the rest of your life, not being able to see. Well, the thing that Luke wants us to see tonight is this, that it is possible in life to have 20-20 vision and miss things of life-changing significance. It's possible in this life to have 20-20 vision, to be able to see the world perfectly, but miss things that have life-changing significance. And Luke wants to make sure that that is not you or I tonight, as we look at this section in the book of Luke. Today we start our series through this last section of the book of Luke. And really, Luke is a collection of the most relevant and reliable sources on the person of Jesus, gathered together by Luke, a medical doctor, so that you and I and his friend Theophilus can clearly see who Jesus is. And the section we've got in front of us tonight, we find three groups of people who have issues seeing, and one person who sees clearly. Three people who have issues seeing, and one person who sees clearly. And we're going to work through it, looking through those different lenses as we move through the passage. So come with me to Luke eighteen thirty-one. It's on the screen, or check it in your Bibles. Then Jesus took the twelve aside, and He told them, listen, literally, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' phrase for himself when he's referring to himself. What Jesus has been doing uh, over the last three years is gathering together his followers, his disciples, his closest friends. He's brought them together here at this point, the ones who've been with him throughout the last 18 chapters the ones who've seen everything that Jesus has done, the ones who've heard His Word, they've observed His power. He's gathered them together at this moment to explain to them His purpose because He sees clearly where He is going and what He is doing. Verse 32 of chapter 18. For He, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be handed over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, insulted, spit on, And after they flog him, they will kill him. And he will rise on the third day. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he is single-minded in his focus. From the day we meet him to the day he promises to come back. He's single-minded in what he is doing and what he is here for. He sees clearly. He sees what needs to be done. What he is here for. Because... That has been planned since the beginning of time. And what's been planned since the beginning of time is what has been promised throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. The death and resurrection of Jesus. They're not just mere events that happen by accident. Tragic things that have gone on. The world got it wrong. It's the pinnacle of human history. The very events that we need. The things that the whole earth hinges on. The events of all human history have been looking forward to and longing for to happen are about to happen before us in this passage. The events that the rest of history after Jesus' death and resurrection must live in response to are here. This is the pinnacle of human history. Now, as we get to this point in the passage, we need to note the importance Jesus places on the Old Testament. For some of us we just see the Bible as just one big book, but really it's a collection of sixty-six books, divided into Old Testament and New Testament. And the Old Testament books are those that are written before Jesus. But if I'm honest, there's part of me that's like, yeah, and they're the hard ones to get through. All right, you start in Genesis and there's some cool stuff, the world's made, mankind rejects God, and then you kind of like there's this kind of repeated pattern that happens throughout Genesis, and you meet all these people, there's a crazy story with a guy called Joseph. And then there's this great exodus from Egypt that goes on. And then, but then after a while, we end up in Leviticus. And that's generally where most people stop when they get to the Old Testament. Because <laughs> you're like, what are all these laws? There's like, can't eat this and can do that. And you're just like, what is going on? And I'm pretty sure there are chapters that say the same thing repeated. Like, do you ever feel like that? And you're kind of sitting here thinking, what is all of this about? Well, Jesus says, it's all about Him. And in fact, understanding the Old Testament is key to understanding Jesus. And we're going to see that, that as we go through this passage, that Jesus is pointing forward to that everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. If you want to know Jesus, you've got to know the backstory of the Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament, you've got to be looking forward to how Jesus accomplishes what it promises. About the promises of God. So, first point to note, we need to know the Old Testament. We need to understand the Old Testament and the way we do that is we recognize what it says to the original audience but also what that means for its fulfillment in Jesus. The second thing we need to understand is this, the God of the Bible is a God who keeps His promises. I don't know if you've ever been around people that kind of say stuff to you, but you know they're not going to keep it. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll give you that 20 bucks back next week. But they never do. It always goes on and you're like, yeah, whatever. You just write it off. It's all right. You know? uh, or, or, or maybe you know someone that's just always late. They say they'll be there on time, but, but they're not. <laughs> maybe you're thinking of me. I don't know. <laughs> but and you think, can we trust these people? Here's newsflash. God is not like me or you. God keeps his promises always. His word will be accomplished. And as Jesus steps onto the scene in this next section of Luke, as he heads to Jerusalem, knowing what he has to do, as he sees the world clearly, he knows that God the Father, through God the Son, is accomplishing his word. I want us to understand the significance of that when you feel like you're not sure what's happening in life and where we're going and what life is about, we can come to the promises of God and know that they will come true. God will be faithful to his word. He's gone to great lengths to make sure that happens when Jesus would die on the cross. God always keeps his word. How does the significance of that shape your life? The way you read his word, the way you look at his promises the way you understand the God who made you and loves you. Well, it's joy, isn't it? There's a great joy to know that God keeps his word, that he is not like us. There's a great confidence that no matter what happens, he is in control and he's good. Jesus is the one person in this story that sees this clearly, that sees clearly where he is headed and sees clearly what his purpose is and sees clearly who he is. Have you ever had one of those experiences uh, when you're looking straight at something but it's as if you can't see it? I don't know, you, you might have had it where, you, where you're going around the house looking for your, your sunglasses, you're kind of looking everywhere and then finally you put your hand on your head and go, where are they? And you realize they're on your head. Have you ever had that moment? Or was it, it is just me. <laughs> Come on, all right. There's moments where like we, we're looking at stuff. Like where are my keys? And they're in, in your pocket all along. Or You open the fridge, you're like, where's the food? But it's staring in your face but you can't see it. And it's like someone's hidden it behind something else in the fridge. I had one of those moments uh, a few years ago. I was sitting in a cafe. I was chatting with someone. I can't remember who I was chatting with. But later on, someone said they saw me in that cafe. And they said, oh, it was great. you were sitting next to royalty. I'm like, what do you mean? I said, the table right next to you. Didn't you see them? I'm like, see who? They're like, Richie McCaw. I'm like, no. <laughs> Apparently, I was sitting a meter from Richie McCaw. Now, does anyone here n- not know who Richie McCaw is? have a show of hands? Okay, don't kill him later. (laughs) Explain it nicely that he he was the kind of the the captain of the All Blacks, one of the greatest rugby players the world has ever seen, uh, and a helicopter pilot. Like, what else do you want, right? Uh, I was a meter away, just talking away, right in front of me, and I've missed something that's important. The disciples, Jesus' closest friends the ones that are most likely to know Jesus' favourite food, who knew all his stories, who, who had seen his power, we hear in the next section of this passage did not recognise that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Not in this way. They did not understand that he was the fulfilment of all these things that had been promised. My question for us is, as we move through this passage, that Luke is putting together for us is, could that be you? Could it be that you've been living your life Looking to Jesus. You might have been at church for years going, yeah, I'm a religious person. You might know Jesus' stories and think, oh yeah, Jesus is a great guy. He's a help to me in society. You might have maybe heard about Christmas. But could it be that you've missed the world-changing significance of who Jesus is? The irony in the story Luke records for us is that it's not those with the closest vision of Jesus who get what's really going on but a blind man who sees what the disciples can't. Look with me at verse 35 of Luke 18, where we're going to see that the blind see. That's a hint. I'm on the next point. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what this meant. Jesus, the Nazarene is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those in front told him to keep quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, as you hear that section, there should be something that kind of stands out as odd if you've got any Bible knowledge about you. We all know that Jesus was from a town called Nazareth. Now, that's what people say in verse 37. Jesus, the Nazarene, the dude from Nazareth, is passing by. And we know that his mother was Mary and his father was Joseph, right? Joe and Mary, they had baby Jesus. We've all seen the kind of stable stuff. And so we know that his dad is Joseph. So why is this blind dude calling out, son of David? You can understand maybe why the crowd tries to silence him. Perhaps it's because uh, this man is a social outcast and why should he be near this Jesus? But perhaps also it's because they've not really understood who he is. Is this Joseph's boy, you clown. You know, get some glasses. I'm like, no, I'm blind. It's not going to (laughs) help. The irony is the blind man has seen something no one else in the story of Luke has seen. No person. Something that the prophets promised. Something that Luke hinted at at the very beginning of the book when he recorded the words of the angel who spoke to Mary before Jesus was even conceived. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Listen to this. Then the angel told her to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. We don't hear that Jesus being called the son of David from that point up until right now. This boy from Nazareth, would be given the throne of king david david was the king that god chose the king that god made follow him that was after god's own heart he was the the ruler of israel and he made a promise to david he made a promise to david that he would give him a throne that would last forever a child of david's would be on the throne and be the ruler of rulers the king over all Come with me and have a look at that promise. It's in 2 Samuel 7. I'll put it on the screen, but if you've got your own Bible, um, flick there as well. There's a place you should mark in your Bible just to have a look at, to kind of come back to. This is a key passage. Uh, If you're against marking Bibles, I know some people are like, oh no, I can't write in that. Um, Stick a sticky note in there, or I don't know. Just put something in there, because this passage is key. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. God promises David this. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, i.e. you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. We so easily miss the significance of this. The moment we view Jesus as merely a good moral teacher, an influential figure from human history, or maybe just a religious leader, or even just our personal saviour and friend, the moment we, we reduce Jesus to all of those things, we miss the significance of who he really is. He is no mere man, but the one who will be King of kings and Lord of lords. His throne will last forever. He will rule all the kings of the earth. He will rule the universe forever. His throne, his dominion, his power will have no end. I don't mean that in some spiritual or figurative way, like he's kind of ruling from afar. I mean that the future of the cosmos will be led and is currently being led in part by this man, God the Son, the Son of David. The Jews look forward to him as the Messiah. The Greeks, they called him the Christ. Both words, Messiah and Christ, just mean promised king, the king. The future of the universe, the future of you and me, is in his hands. I want to describe to you how John, one of the followers of Jesus, who at this point doesn't really get what's going on, and we'll see that later as we come back to it, He's not really understanding how this fulfills the promise of the Old Testament. But once Jesus rises from the dead and he has the Spirit, it all becomes very clear. And John records in Revelation 19 this. I'm going to read a little bit more than's on the screen, but it'll be okay. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, there was a white horse, its rider is faithful and true, he judges and makes war in righteousness, his eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head, he had a name written that no one knows except himself, he wore a robe stained with blood and his name was the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. John, at this point in the book of Revelation, paints the picture of the awesome majesty and kingship of Jesus on the day he comes back. When the world will see him as he really is, king over all kings, lord over all lords. There is no other like Jesus. It's a reality that they all seem to miss, except this blind man in Luke 18. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you were to come right now before the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the King of kings and Lord of lords, with his word like a sword and his judgments being true, if you were to come before him right now, how would you feel? Luke wants us to see Jesus as he really is. king of kings and the Lord of lords. And all this blind man says... have mercy on me. Do not treat me as I deserve to be treated. Do not treat me the way that I should be for turning my back on you. Have mercy on me. It makes me ask, have you seen Jesus as this King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Is that your picture of Jesus? Have you seen him as the one who has come to accomplish all the plans and promises of God? The one who will rule the universe forever? Or do you, like me, find yourself tempted to shrink Jesus down to your friend, to your Savior, the one that helps you, rather than the King of kings and Lord of lords? Son of David, have mercy on me. At that moment, in verse 40, Jesus stops. He commands that this man, this blind man, be brought to him. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. Now, I want us to feel the weight of this. The blind man, he does not seek out Jesus. He just calls out his name, and then Jesus gives him the command, you come to me. Imagine being called by the King of kings and Lord of lords. He says, you come to me now. What is going through your head? Like, I'm stuffed. What is going to happen here? What sort of king will this king of kings and lord of lords be? How should we expect him to respond? Will he be some sort of horrible tyrant? A self-seeking dictator who's about his plans and purposes at the expense of everyone else? An unapproachable monarch? What will this king be like? Verse 41. When the blind man drew near... Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The King of Kings and Lord of Lords asks a blind beggar that's been pushed by society to the fringes what he would like to do for him. Jesus is like no other. He is the King who serves his people. The King who steps into our world and meets us where we are at. Have you seen this Jesus? Lord, the blind man says. Ironically, I want to see. The blind man wants to see, yet he's called out what no one else has seen so far. It's incredible irony. The men with the best vision of Jesus, the disciples, they kind of miss it, but now this blind man sees Jesus as he really is. And as an added bonus, he has given back his sight as well. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you, literally saved you. There's not one ounce of doubt that this blind man here in this story actually received back his sight. If Jesus really is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if he's the God that made you and sustains you, if if he's made the universe with just the power of his word, then restoring the sight of a blind man doesn't seem like a tall task at all. Some people come along and be like, oh, maybe this is just a parallel story. Maybe it's just a story to talk through. You know, really, you were speaking figuratively. You could figuratively see. No. Jesus is the one who is in control over all things. But while God didn't promise to heal every blind beggar back then, neither does he promise to heal every sickness and disease today This one, this blind beggar we're meeting in this passage, he did heal. But we must not shut our eyes to the bigger message of what's going on here. It's not first and foremost about the healing of one man, but the one man who heals. It's about the one man who heals. See, 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, uh, there was a guy called Isaiah, He was a prophet, a spokesperson for God. And he pointed forward to the day when God's promised king, God's new leader, would come in. And he spoke in chapter 61 of Isaiah about what that day would be like, how you could tell that God's promised king was here if you had eyes to see it. And Lucas reminded us that in Luke 4, Jesus was invited into the synagogue and they'd given him a scroll to read. So he opens up Isaiah and he shows what, what is going on when this blind man is being healed, is actually pointing to the identity of Jesus. Look with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Is Jesus saying that's what he's come to do? That he is this promised one who would come? Look at verse 20. Jesus then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. do you see what this is about? It's not merely a blind man being healed. It's about the identity of the one who healed him. Here is God's promised king, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the culmination of God's plans. God's promised king is here. And what we're seeing is an inbreaking of the kingdom he was coming to reign over. The kingdom where brokenness was, was mended. Forgiveness was given, a kingdom with no more mourning or crying or pain. And so as Jesus comes on the earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as he makes himself known, you start seeing all around him signs of the kingdom that he will bring in when he comes back. People healed, sight being given, restoration of those who are are captive to sin. The preaching of the good news that God's promised king is here. The year of the Lord's favor. Eternity has come. As Jesus comes to town, the world around him quakes and little bright spots of mending start happening, all to point to the fact that the King has come. This blind man entrusted his life to the one he saw as the son of David. Look at Jesus' response. Look at the response to Jesus, verse 43. Instantly he could see And he began to follow Jesus, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. When you see Jesus rightly, it changes everything. When you recognize who he is and what he has done, it changes the way you live and what you live for. It's not recorded here, but in, in Mark and throughout church history, it's recorded that this blind beggar's name was probably Bartimaeus. He's Bart, blind Bart. And, and and what Bartimaeus was known for throughout church history, again, not in Scripture, but through church history, was the guy that just followed Jesus everywhere. After this moment, he was so captivated with Jesus as the son of David that he followed him, that he honored him with his life, like a, like a moth fixated to light so this man was to Jesus. When you see Jesus rightly, it necessitates following him fully. When you see Jesus rightly, it necessitates following him fully, living for his praise, that he be glorified, that the world around us might give him the honor and praise and adoration and worship that Jesus deserves. Did you see that? Everyone around is amazed and they praise God. God. If you're not following Jesus, it's because you haven't seen him. You haven't recognized who he is. He's been standing in front of your face. But you have not accepted what he has done and his identity as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some of us here, we haven't seen him. We just don't get it. I want to encourage you to keep coming back and looking at what Jesus says to you tonight, because we'll see more as we move further on. Others of us are blind to the majesty of Jesus. We might have got it once, we might have understood, you know, Jesus is great and we we kind of served him with our life and followed him for a while, but now Jesus has just become a bit dull. There's other things going on in life, other things jumping up on my radar. He's not got that brightness that he once had. I wonder, is it possible that our vision of Jesus has become so foggy because we've allowed other things to get in our way. Well, in the last section, we begin to see the king who seeks and saves. In this final episode, we meet another man who has issues seeing. Oh, he wants to see but he can't. He longs to see, but he just can't get a glimpse of this man Jesus. But this time, it's not because of a problem with his eyes, but a problem with his legs. The dude's short. (laughs) His name's Zacchaeus. And we meet him in Luke 19, verse 1. Have a listen. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man. And one of the things I always wanted to be when I grew up was tall. I I really wanted to be over six foot. It didn't happen. It's probably not going to happen. I think at 37, any chances of a growth spurt are gone. Um, But uh, growing up, um, I had this great joy of of seeing differences in height. Uh, My mum, she's like about five feet. Which is reasonably small. It was nice. I could relate to her because we were similar, you know, it was, it was good. It was helpful. And my dad was like six foot four. And dad always had this thing. It was great. Firstly, you could always see him in a crowd. You're like, oh, there he is. He's like walking around. It was helpful, right? Uh, and as a kid, I loved sitting on his shoulders because, like, I was at least a foot above most other kids who were on their dad's shoulders because I'm like, yeah, this is helpful. But I just wished he could see. Zacchaeus wishes he could see Jesus. He's trying to get a glimpse of this man. He's coming through Jericho, which is Zacchaeus' kind of place. The place of work, we'll find out in a a moment. The place where he's known amongst so many others. So Zacchaeus runs ahead to get a glimpse of Jesus. He climbs up a tree. That's what you do when you don't have your six foot four dad there, right? You climb a tree and then you can see. But the thing that we miss about this story is just how vulgar Zacchaeus is. Sounds like just a short guy. What's wrong with being a short guy? Well, we miss a couple of significant facts about the story. Number one, Jericho is very significant. As Jesus entered Jericho, he's entering the main town that collects collects taxes. This is kind of the main town where taxes come to the Roman government. It's kind of like going to Wellington. Right? No one wants to go there. They've got to put the best coffee and all that sort of stuff on so people will put up with the wind. I'm sorry if you're from Wellington, like, I think, is he, he, a caveat, Wellington on a good day, best, best city in New Zealand. Like, seriously, it is amazing on all three days. <laughs> Jericho was the main place that taxes were collected. Now, the Jews, they were desiring to be their own nation, but they were under the control, the governorship of the Romans. And the taxes they had to pay weren't to, to Israel, they were to the Romans. And they're like, this is a show that we're not, this is just showing that we're not as we should be. So they hate giving taxes, not only because it's got to come out of their pockets, like, ah, I don't want to give money away. Secondly, because they've got to give it to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. The third thing, the way that the Romans collected taxes is that they would kind of convince Jews to go amongst the Jewish people and collect the taxes and then bring it back to the Gentiles. So every tax collector was a traitor. They were a traitor because they're taking their money, number one, they were a traitor because they were taking money from Jews and giving it to Romans, number two. They were a traitor because they were working for Rome, number three. And then also because often these tax collectors would take a bit more because they could. They had the power of Rome. And whenever we're given power, we always corrupt, right? And they had this power, and so they took a little bit extra. Some for them, some for me, more for me, some for them. And so tax collectors were hated amongst the Jews. If you wanted to see someone on the edges of society, a tax collector. Well, you've got the blind beggar at on one end, is the one who's got no money, and up the other end, you've got this tax collector who everyone hates because he's raking it in. He's got Rome behind him. He's a traitor, and he, and he hates Israel. What is he doing? And then we hear that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. You're like, okay, this is like the man. You know when everyone's angry at the man. Angry at the man because they're taking our money? Zacchaeus is the man. He's the chief tax collector. And then Luke tells us he was rich. Like he had it all. And so everyone's like, they hate this guy Zacchaeus. They want to push him to the side. Who is this guy? He shouldn't be here. He's a sinner. He's not living the way the Jews ought to be living. And there's this Jew, Jesus, come along, talking about teaching the Old Testament scriptures. Why should this Zacchaeus guy get front row? We don't want him around at all. But when Jesus came to the exact spot, the original tells us, Zacchaeus was perched. He stops. Zacchaeus doesn't do anything or say anything. He's stuck up a tree, kind of half hiding from everyone who hates him. Everyone who's got nothing to do with him. Who is that guy? Ah! Oh. He's up in a tree trying to get a glimpse of Jesus and Jesus stops. Look at verse 5. Jesus looks up and said to him, Zacchaeus... Hurry and come down, because today I must stay at your house. Now, it's an odd opening line for any friendship, isn't it? Have you ever been along the street and just bumped into someone and said, Oh, hey, you know, Rowan, today's the day I'm coming to your place. You're like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> he's like, I was up a tree just trying to look at Jesus and he stopped and he's come to me. And now he's saying he's going to come to my house? Or running through your head if, you know, some kind of ish guy kind of came along and said, I'm going to come to your house today. I'd be like, crap, have we we cleaned? Is the house tidy? You know, is there anything in the fridge? Is there any food? Where am I going to seat him? What about those people that stayed over last night from watching that movie and now there's pizza all over the floor? What am I going to do with them? Like all these things go through your life, through your mind. And if we think about our lives before the true and living God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, What goes through your head if he said he was coming to live at your place? What would he see about your life, the way you're living, the way you treated him? But listen to Zacchaeus' response. Something happens between verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 6, Luke 19. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. What happened there? Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus. Jesus tells Zacchaeus he's coming to his house and Zacchaeus changes. Something goes on within him. He recognizes what has gone on. He's repentant at this point. After Jesus says he's coming to his house, not before but after, Zacchaeus says, that's it, I'm giving back kind of all, all, all the money that I've taken in, in, in wrongful ways and all the money I've got rightly, I'm going to give half of that to the poor anyway. I'm going to stop Serving the thing that has blinded me from the king. Money is the thing that has led him to betray his people, potentially, and his God. And he says he'll no longer seek those things, but he'll run after the one who has invited himself to his house. While others stand around amazed that Jesus would associate with a sinner like Zacchaeus, Luke gives us another glimpse of the character of this king. He goes to the fringes of society, not only to the blind beggar, but also to the wealthy mogul, the one who is this sinful, gathering, collecting, kind of the man. Jesus associates with them all. He comes to them all because he is king of all. And then he says this line in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. This traitor of a Jew who's selling out Israel is now called a son of Abraham, a true Jew. For the son of man, Jesus, has come to seek and save the lost. How often we stand on the edges of of society and just look at the world around us and think, you know, who is most likely of my friends to be a Christian? And you kinda of think through, well there's that person, they're a pretty good person, they're probably likely to be a Christian. They might kind of come there they're nice. Or you might look at that other person and be like, man, they're way too far gone. You know, they're Australian and they're like you know, all these horrible things, you're like, no, that's not possible for them. We do all sorts of Christian profiling and we think who should be in the kingdom? what Luke is showing us, what Jesus shows us is that no one should be in the kingdom but that the king has come for them all, the blind beggar, the rich, sinful mogul. The reality for them all is that all of us are lost. All of us are shameful, all of us on our own feet, if we were to appear before the true and living God, would be shown for what we really are. People that live for ourselves, people that haven't treated God rightly. Whether we are the blind and broken beggar or the wealthy sinner, each of us has a stockpile of shame, don't we? A list of things that we would hate for God to look into if He came to our house. But what's amazing about each of these stories is that while... Each of them begins shamefully. They all end gloriously. They end in the best possible way. The blind beggar seeing Jesus and receiving sight. The the sinful tax collector becoming a child of God again. A child of Abraham. Of trusting in Jesus and, and, and turning his life around. No matter how broken you think you are. No matter how much... You're embarrassed and guilty about the stockpile of shame you know exists in your life, the way you live this week, the things you thought, the things you said, the things that you've done. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. That's me and that's you. And what we see in this passage is something that's quite amazing. So often we think the problem is that we don't seek Jesus enough, but in every instance throughout these three stories, it's not the person who seeks Jesus, but it's Jesus who comes to them. No matter how broken you are, no matter what you've done or haven't done, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is stopping at your tree today. No matter what you're trying to hide from, no matter how worried you are about what your house looks like, Jesus is standing and saying to you, I want to come to your house today. I want to move into your life. I want you to recognize who I am and what I have done. I am coming around. The thing that Luke wants us to see here is not only that Jesus is the culmination of human history, not only is he the son of David, the king of kings and lord of lords, Not only is is he the one who's come to reverse the effects of our rebellion against God and forgive us and sort out sickness and pain, but he is the one who has come to you now. You are hearing his word. He wants you here tonight. Have you seen Jesus? In each of these cases, Jesus was in control of who saw him rightly and when he came to them. You might like to think that we can kind of do it all, but here we see Jesus is the one, this King who comes to us. We don't go to Him. If we were left on our own, we wouldn't even care two hoots about Him. But He comes to us. The disciples, they didn't grasp what was said because it was hidden from them at that point. But later on, Jesus would reveal Himself and they will become His greatest tellers of the news of the gospel. In Luke eighteen thirty four, I don't know if you saw it. We skipped over it earlier. It's not on the screen, but you could check it out. Luke records the disciples understood none of these things about Jesus' death and resurrection. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. (laughs) They didn't see because Jesus didn't want them to see at that point. The blind man, he didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus called him to Himself. Zacchaeus didn't invite Jesus round to his house and say, "Hey, Jesus, come round." Jesus invited himself to his house. The key thing to note is this. It's not that we come to him, but that today he comes to us. As you listen today, Jesus is stopped at your tree. He's saying, let me run your life, for I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me in. In fact, he's not not really... Even asking. He's commanding. He's saying, Stop it. Stop running from me. I made you. I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. I do not want you to meet what is just and fair and right. An eternity of hell for those who've rejected me. Let me in. Not as a lunch date, but as your Lord. Not as some religious insurance policy, but as the ruler of your life. Not as a guest but as the true and living God. I don't know if you saw, the moment Jesus invited himself round to Zacchaeus, Jesus didn't require Zacchaeus to change at all before he entered his house. He didn't say, Zacchaeus, I want you to go home and sort things out. I want you to be right for me. I want you to do these things for me and then I'll come round." Jesus came to Zacchaeus as Zacchaeus was. He stopped at the exact point where Zacchaeus was at and he took up residence with him as he was on Jesus' terms. Friends, Jesus comes to us where we are. From blind beggars to wealthy sinners. Jesus approaches each and every one. But you'll notice in every instance that we see in this passage, Jesus comes to them as they are but none of them stay as they are. None of them stay as they are. The disciples have a huge transformation. They take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They die willingly telling the world about who Jesus is and what he's done and how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The blind beggar stops sitting on the side of the road begging and becomes Bartimaeus, history tells us. This guy who's so captivated by Jesus that he follows him with his whole life. Zacchaeus clears from his sight the idols that he'd been living for and treats Jesus as Lord, not before Jesus comes in, but in response to Jesus coming to Him. Let me explain to you what it is like to have Jesus take up residence in your life. I think for some of us, we're like, yeah, yeah, I like Jesus. We want to invite Him into our house, but then we don't want Him to see every room. Are there some areas of your life right now that you just want to shut the door to Jesus on? You're like, well, don't go into that room. I don't want you thinking about that. I don't want you seeing um, what I'm doing there or how I'm thinking there. Sometimes we want to invite Jesus in and we kind of like having him in the house. It's kind of a bit safe, but we, we don't know where to put him. And so maybe we, we usher him back to the, the kind of the spare bedroom. I don't know if you've got a spare bedroom in your house. In our house, that's a place where all the unwanted Christmas presents from uncles and aunties that are really too hideous to wear get pushed away. And you kind of put everything in that kind of cupboard and you go, well, Jesus can stay there. He's in my house. I've got Jesus in the house. You know, it's great. But he's in the back room. Now, when Jesus comes to town, When he comes into our lives, he comes as the king of kings and lord of lords. He walks in the front door and he says, that's got to change. He rearranges each room to how the rooms should be, to the way he made them to be. He helps us recognize that we need to put him first in every area and he reorients each room of our life to live for him, wiping the idols from our eyes and the stumbling blocks from our vision. Have you seen who Jesus is tonight? Have you recognized that he is coming to us to seek and save the lost? You can't run from Jesus. You you can claim that he's not clear. You can claim that you haven't seen enough. You can claim that you don't understand but you can't run away from the fact that tonight he is speaking to you through his word and by his spirit. He's standing looking at each of us seeing the state of all our houses knowing our fears, our secrets and our shame and loving us the same. What a king he is. It is possible to have twenty twenty vision and miss the most life changing realities that are right in front of us. The question for us tonight is, will you let Jesus reshape your life? Have you seen him? And will you follow him? Make today the day that salvation moves into your house. For Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much that tonight you have come to us. You've shown us yourself. You've shown us your son. You've given us a glimpse of the majesty and power and greatness of Jesus, son of David, ruler over all creation. We confess that our lives, they're not fit to host you or even have you anywhere near us. We confess that we we don't treat you as we ought, but we are so, so thankful that Jesus has come to seek and save out the lost, sinners like us. So we pray that you would so capture us with this picture of who Jesus is. He'd point us back to your word to see the richness of what you have been doing and how that is fulfilled in him and that you would then Enable us to live following Jesus. Help us to see that that is life lived rightly. Help us to see that is the only response that is true and right and good once we have recognized who you are. We pray tonight you would shape us and mold us and change us into the likeness of your son that we might follow him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.